2: Welcome to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Katie Mingle. You'll hear our weekly radio show, V Sound here, as well as the occasional story curated recently from our audio library at thirdcoastfestival.org. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit organization whose livelihood depends in part on support from listeners like you. To find out how you can help or to check out all of the cool stuff we do apart from our radio show, visit our website. ThirdCoastFestival.org. Thanks and enjoy the podcast
3: from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey, and this is Resound.
4: change
5: What's the matter? Nothing. 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 I only, I love sandwich You'd like a what? A sandwich. A sandwich. You'll get a sandwich shortly. The Third Coast Festival is a
3: celebration of sound and story. We scour the airwaves and the internet, trolling for tales that inspire and intrigue us. Then we take the best of what we hear, add a pinch of music, a flourish of found sound, a sprinkling of audio oddities, and voila, reSound.
5: Wait. I'm not hungry. You're not hungry? I am now. All right. Well, I've got some grapes for you. Would you like uh, some grapes? I don't know.
3: <laughs> Bless you
2: we you been good
3: yeah. let 's face it as a species, we human beings get a pretty bad rap, egotistical, individualistic, greedy. oh the list goes on. But at the same time, paradoxically, we're also natural caregivers, who are compelled to take care of others as much as we need to be taken care of ourselves. Today on ReSound, we explore the delicate interdependence between being in need and answering the call to help.
5: Three times a week, I go and see Norm. I get up, I pack a tidbit lunch for him, hard cheese and prosciutto and... Things that I know that he, he enjoys having. At the
3: beginning of life, we're completely dependent. But often, at the end of life, we require caretakers again. In caring for a baby, our thoughts drift toward the future and all of the possibilities. With the elderly, though, our thoughts can drift toward the past. Our next documentary is a love story in remembrance that begins at the end and looks back on a visceral bond that defined two lives.
5: My name's Brian Trelaw and I'm 76 years old. We separated our bedroom a while ago because he said that I snored so dreadfully that it was keeping him awake. But then he missed me because he couldn't put his cold feet on me to warm up. So all those things are gone by the board. But they're the lovely things that you remember. The very first thing that I loved about Norm, the very first moment that I saw him, was that I got a beautiful smile and his eyes were sad.
2: Cheese!
5: The only thing I'd ever eaten was that blue boxed craft in all my life. I'd never ever had any, any Gorgonzola stink, my God. However, I got to love it. Olives. I thought, I when he brought these black grapes home, I thought, what in the heck name are they? Put one in my mouth and with. <coughs> Like that, it's out as quick as it went in, quicker. I thought, how disgusting, how can anybody eat that? I now love them. So food has played a big part now in our lives. Three times a week I go and see Norm, which is uh, Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I get up, I pack a tidbit lunch for him. Enough grated cheese for you, Normie? I think. Uh, they're little, little pieces of enjoyment, like hard cheese and prosciutto and things that I know that he he enjoys having, as apart from the meal that he gets at the uh, the nursing home. I then put it into my little roll along trolley. I mean, the sadness is that I. I can't give him a cuddle but then he doesn't I don't think he knows me now Um, every now and then I get some semblance of recognition and then I think well does he really recognise me because he'll put up his hand and then you see a, a change come over his face like oh that's not him that's not who it is and he puts his hand down again so I think oh, at least for that moment you remembered oh hello you've got a car out the front here and I'm coming to see Basso okay g'day Norm how are you hello here I am here What's the matter? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing I need. A last sandwich. You'd like a what? A sandwich. A sandwich? You'll get a sandwich shortly. I'm not hungry. You're not hungry? I need now. All right. Well, I've got some grapes for you. Would you like I, some grapes? I don't know. All right. Well, lift your feet up and we'll go. We'll, we'll go. never thought I'd ever be feeding him like a baby. one of those things that just you just never think of it. Dorses, cheese, I've always liked it. Hello? Romano, um. Formaggio romano, no? Ti piace questo? No? Yeah. Perché, perché ti piace? Perché è duro, no? Più duro degli altri. Lovely. <clears throat> yeah, I'll put it on the spoon. Most afternoons when I'm home, when I'm not visiting the nursing home, I put on Chopin. I put on Chopin because that's what I learnt as a kid and it has stayed with me all my life. And Chopin takes me right away from all the dreariness that's around me at the present time. invited mum and dad and my sisters down here and I said you've got to come. They come down in the flyer in the morning flyer and they stayed here for lunch and he put a spatchcock down in front of mum and dad each and I heard mum say to dad dad this, I could could keep, keep us all on this for a week just on this one chicken and I said you've got to eat it mum eat a lot of it even if it fills you up to the point that you're busting you've got to eat it otherwise it's an insult so you know but before that he'd he'd fed my father oysters and prawns and my father loved oysters and loved prawns well after that my father said that's a wonderful man you've got I forgive you that was uh, that meant a lot because after that I could go home without without the insults coming back at me. How's your den of iniquity? Oh, I'd love to know where that is. Hostility. It made us very good actors because on the outside world we were just two straight guys, two two mates, you know. Um, we went around all the pubs together and, and we uh, went to restaurants together with like-minded people and they also were very good actors so there was no kissing or cuddling or holding hands or, it, you know, nothing. All we could do was be two Aussie guys. Him being an Italian and me being an Australian was a bit difficult but still... It was, uh, it was fun, but it also made us very much stronger because we were bound together then, bound not only in, in our love for each other, but we were bound through the antagonism that we knew would be there if we demonstrated anything beyond, you know, mateship. One day we were walking down the street and a cop pulled us up because Norm had on uh, a boat-neck shirt, boat-neck. Women know what I'm talking about, it a boat neckline, And uh, it was stripes across it. He looked a bit like, I suppose, one of those gondoliers that you'll hear about in, in Venice. And white pointy shoes. Well, nobody here had white pointy shoes in 1956. And he said, what are those things on your feet? And I said, well, can't you see their shoes? He said, well, go back to your hotel or wherever you're living and change because we don't want that in our streets. It was a Sunday. You don't dress like that on a Sunday. We said, we're going, to, we're going to mass. He said, well, you're not going to mass in those shoes, that's for sure. We had to go back home. Norm couldn't get over, never got over that. All his life. He said, Remember that dreadful copper? I said, Yes, but you know what it was like that was what it was like. we had another friend that lived just down the street from where we live now and he said there's a big house up the street from me that's up for sale and i said how much And he said six and a half thousand pound and i thought oh my god how can you six and a half thousand pound how, huh? we'll go and have a look at it so we come and had a look at it and we come up the steps and he said oh lovely garden a lovely garden and i said yes yeah. so i said well, i wonder what the house is like well it was old So the lady opened the door and she asked us in. We came into the lounge room and I thought, oh, what couldn't I do with chandeliers and some nice curtains and a few lovely paintings and mirrors and things like that. (laughs) We used to entertain here. We'd have a Christmas party and there'd be... 50 or 60 at the Christmas party. We'd have dancing on the back veranda. We had a wow of a time in this house because we put up a very high fence at the back. Nobody could look through. And we'd have a wonderful time. Decorate the backyard and everything else like that and all the lanterns and everything. New Year's Eve. Gosh. One, t- one time we had 350 people in and around our house. Just imagine someone
4: Waiting at the cottage door Where two hearts become
5: one And poor Norm, I don't know how he did it, he, he cooked for all of them He seemed to be making spaghetti out of buckets all night long
1: And then taking that vow Nice work if you can get it And if you get it Won't you tell me how
5: I've got equipment all over the house to play music. I've got a grand piano which I seem to be playing less and less because I'm fingers aren't working and I'm I'm been getting cramps in my little fingers on both hands and it's uh, most disconcerting to be playing something and all of a sudden you can't do something. It is now a vacuum that Norm's not here. It's, it doesn't have, doesn't have a centre. It's just a series of rooms that I can reminisce in, I suppose, but it just doesn't have the centre. i the music. My music taste has got far darker than when I was younger, than when I had a centre to refer to in the house. He was, you know, it was wonderful with animals, wonderful with flowers. Things like after a storm, when you get that lovely pink light, he'd say to me, "Look, the flowers are laughing," and I'd look, and yes, they were. They're were all nodding their heads, but of course, it was just a little bit of water running off them, and they'd bounce and up they'd come again. So, I, I, all these little things were just lovely, lovely expressions from a very lovely man. Recently, I was um, sitting there, and and uh, and I started to rub his back, thinking, you know, I could put him to sleep, and I'd leave. So then he, uh, I was sitting there, and I put my hand up his back and onto his skin, and started to rub his back and that, you know, virtually draw on his back. And I and I know that for anybody, it's a, it's a lovely se- sensation. We've always done it as kids, and your mothers have done it on your back and sent you to sleep. So at any rate, um, one of the nuns came past and she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm scratching his back because, you know, he's, he's uh, uncomfortable. He's been sitting in this chair all day. And so I'm just sort of rubbing his skin so that I sort of get the circulation back into it. And I said, and I'm drawing on his back at the same time. I said, some, it's a sensation that we've all loved. And she's, she then thought for a moment she said you know i'd love it if somebody'd scratch my back sometime so anyway that that passed off but i'm always fearful of that fact that i might show something or he might show something and then we get treated like dirt I don't think my love for him has changed. The only thing that I do realise is that he's not going to come back. And I'm many a cry I've had over that. But love him, I'll love him until the day he dies. I'll love him until the day I die. I just love him. Right now. Righto. this is always the hard part I'd like to break into tears actually but I'm, I've got to stop because I on top of that I can't let this lot here what, no dry what, hes what, he, 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 he cries he what for the cry yeah he said oh. to me yeah He know he goes naught. I just cry sometimes when I'm sad. ti Sakatiamo per sempre. Eh? Tiamo. Ah, per sempre, no?
3: Brian and Norm was produced by Siobhan Hunt for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Listening to the intimate stories of other people's lives is a privilege, and it's one we try to handle with care. Tell us how we're doing. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Today we're listening to stories about giving and receiving care. In looking for great work, we stumbled upon a series called The Life Stories Collection, produced by Jay Allison. There we found two documentaries that were particularly fitting. The first is by Jay and deals with the relationship between his dad and his uncle. It's a short meditation on family, friendship, and brotherhood.
6: Every year, my father would go get Uncle Sam at the Delaware State Hospital and bring him home for Christmas dinner. Toward the end of the meal, Sam would become agitated and begin to tremble. He'd rush to my father's side and whisper to him. When Dad answered, Sam would nod his head over and over, his eyes focused on the rug. After we finished dinner, Sam, my father would say, Okay, right-o, Peter, right you are, Sam would answer, nodding.
4: Good evening. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Samuel Gregory Hope, who is with us this evening?
6: When dinner was done, Sam would go to the head of the table and stand. He was over six feet five inches tall, almost as tall as my father.
4: And Dad would
6: Hope hand him a beer bottle or a candlestick a to hold like a microphone. Read. Sam liked to sing as though we, we were on the radio.
4: We will all enjoy hearing Mr. Hope's voice in a special Christmas broadcast, 1961.
6: Once in a while, Dad a gave Sam a real microphone and recorded and him on the old wall. woolen sack.
4: Now, Mr. Hope, I will turn the loudspeaker over to you, and we stand in anxious excitement to hear the sounds which you are about to produce. All right? In a lower key, all right? Won't you sit down? you make me nervous. You'll follow me, All right. All right. right. Are you ready?
6: they grew up on a farm in rural virginia sam followed my father everywhere he would show up on my father's dates he shadowed him around town dad once said that he was sometimes embarrassed by his retarded older brother and tried to give him the slip running away to hide in the fields before going to town alone eventually sam became my father's responsibility He lived in halfway houses or institutions all his adult life. Dad set things up for him, gave him what he needed, and took care of his problems, which were many. When Sam died, my father took him back home to Virginia. Someone else owns their old farm in Orange County now. My father doesn't like to trespass, so once in the pasture, he wants to be done with it. He walks along the creek, face forward, sprinkling Sam's ashes from the urn. But there's a wind that day, and it won't let the ashes rest. It lifts them up instead. My father looks around, sees Sam's ashes blowing toward him, and in an effort to avoid them starts to trot away, slowly at first, still emptying the urn behind him. The wind picks up and carries Uncle Sam. He rises in a cloud. Dad turns again, sees him gaining and speeds up. He favors his bad leg, but he's running hard now, Uncle Sam right behind him, following him through the fields where they grew up. When it was over, my father drove the station wagon back to Delaware with the empty urn on the front seat.
4: Thank you, Mr. Hope, in all the long history of the Delaware Avenue Music Hall.
6: When Sam finishes, we all clap for him. He bows his head. He's not humble, but appreciative. Pretty good, huh, Peter? He says to his little brother when he looks up. Yes, Sam, pretty darn good. Want another one? Why, sure, Sam. How about Silent Night?
4: Now with the Christmas season upon us, we have an appropriate song. Song. Night,
6: holy night. Across the dinner table, I watch. Sam's eyes are closed, his chin held high, lit from underneath by the candles on our Christmas table. Then, as he sings, his eyes open, fixing my father, asking him something. My father meets Uncle Sam's gaze and nods, the two of them loving each other, locked in brotherhood.
3: Dad and Sam was produced by Jay Allison for his Life Stories collection. Our next story is from the same series and concerns a very special bond that develops between a compassionate caretaker and a 14-year-old caretakee. It's called Fire
1: and Ice Cream. During the first weeks in the burn unit, Pain blurred from my wounds like air horns at a high school football game. I hated my body, my nerves, my brain. I wanted them all to just shut up. There were only a few times I wasn't in pain. Once before burn therapy, Tina, my nurse, pushed morphine straight into my bloodstream instead of dripping it through the IV. I asked her to push it. I begged her to let me feel it all at once, to blow out my mind like an overexposed photograph, and she did. For 30 seconds, I couldn't feel my body, My vision was whitewashed, and I understood why someone would want to be an addict. When I could talk again, I mumbled. Why don't they sell this stuff on the streets? They could make a fortune. Tina unwrapped my bandages, exposing my legs to the air. I looked down. They didn't look like legs at all. They were skinny and useless. So many shades of purple, they didn't even look real. I saw the massive wound as big as a mailbox on my left thigh, where the fire had burned all the way through to the muscle. Tina saw me looking, leaned over and whispered what she always said. It's okay. It's going to get better. The redness means that it's healing. I closed my eyes and braced myself for what was coming next. She would begin by cleaning each open wound on my feet, working up to my thighs, and then she would turn me on my stomach to clean the holes in my back. The pain roared from my legs as she cleaned the first wound. Tina explained that my body was healing and that healing was one of the most painful things a body could do. She said that pain meant I was getting better. didn't feel like I was getting better. My skin was tissue paper, and she was tearing at it with steel wool. She told me that if it hurt too much that I should scream as loud as I could, and at first I didn't want to. I thought it would be rude or disruptive, and that I could just close my mind to the pain if I tried. But she said that I should scream, and that would let some of the pain out. And so she cleaned every wound three times. I screamed, and it became a kind of waltz, with Tina counting her swipes aloud and me screaming, One, two, three, scream. One, two, three, scream. After she covered me in gauze and ace bandages, my body was shivering. I was exhausted, crying a little bit, trying not to think about how I'd have to do it all over again in eight hours. Tina stood at the head of my bed. Her thick black curls spiraled toward my face. Brent, she said. Do you like ice cream? It seemed like a silly question, since I was still getting fed through a tube in my nose. When you get that nose tube out, when you can walk again, I'm going to take you to the best ice cream shop in D.C. It had been weeks since I had eaten anything, and I hadn't even thought about ice cream. I couldn't believe it. Tina and I would go out for ice cream when I could walk. We would go on a date. It was eight weeks later, and it was going to be my first time outside the burn unit, Most of the pain had gone and been replaced by the itch. Anyone who's ever had a burn can tell you that the itch comes after the pain and that it's sometimes worse because it's constant. It made me feel like the skin on my body didn't belong to me, as if it had been stripped away in my sleep and replaced with raw wool. I prepared for hours for my date with Tina. My mom and another nurse named Barbara picked out the loosest, least irritating clothing, and they helped me into a pair of baggy athletic pants and a Hard Rock Cafe London t-shirt. "'that my mom said looked really cool. "'They discussed whether I should wear the pressure bandage "'that masked part of my face, "'and then Barbara slipped the chin strap over my head "'and Velcroed it behind my neck. "'She put a purple Los Angeles Lakers cap on me "'to cover part of the bandage. "'They both said that I looked handsome. "'I didn't look in a mirror. "'Finally, Tina came to pick me up for our date. "'She had taken off her scrubs and put on a loose white sweater. "'Her functional shoes were replaced with green All-Stars, "'and she was wearing shorts.' I'd never seen her in shorts before. She looked so relaxed, not like a nurse at all. She smiled at me from the doorway. As a burn nurse in a children's hospital, Tina rarely had patients that she could talk to. Most of the kids she took care of were two-year-olds, kids that could walk well enough to pull boiling water down from the stove, but couldn't understand that it wasn't her fault that they were in pain. Those kids hated her for hurting them. They panicked every time she came near them. But I knew that the pain wasn't her fault. I talked to her, and we made each other laugh. Could a 26-year-old burn nurse be interested in her 14-year-old patient? I was in love with Tina, and I was sure that she was at least a little bit in love with me, too. Why else would she take me out on a date? And she had called it a date. Why else would she wear shorts or green shoes, a clear sign to a 14-year-old boy that says, Go, go, go. We waited for the elevator next to a hospital directory sign, and I decided to make my first joke. I cleared my throat and said, Spina bifida. That sounds like some sort of Greek food. Tina made a face and said, You wouldn't say that if you knew what it was. The elevator doors opened. Walking out of the hospital with Tina made me feel like I was on a real date, although I'd never been on a date before. Something about being on my own feet, walking into the fresh air, the afternoon sunlight, a woman next to me, a woman who had, I reminded myself, already seen me naked. But by the time we got to the car, I was exhausted. Sweating from the few remaining pores in my forehead and armpits, the itch which had been mercifully quiet during the first few minutes of our date started buzzing in my legs. Tina must have noticed that I was uncomfortable, because she put the back of her hand, no rubber glove, her actual hand against my forehead, and wiped the beating sweat away. What did that mean, I wondered to myself. Tina parked about a block away from the ice cream place she'd been telling me about, got out of the car, and rushed around to my side to open the door that's sweet i thought i wish i'd done that for her she helped me onto my feet and we began walking towards the ice cream place you okay she asked sure i said you i was trying to ignore the itch that had spread up my legs and into my back i was walking that was the important thing and i was on a date inside the cool air dried the sweat on my forehead and i began to feel more confident I let out a sigh of relief just to let her know that the worst was over and that we would start to have fun any second. We stood in line behind a few senior citizens that were deciding between pistachio and butter pecan. I smiled at her and rolled my eyes a little as if to say, can you believe these old people? They're so slow. And she smiled back. This is working, I thought. This is really working. It was then that I saw the ice cream guy checking Tina out from behind the counter. He was college-aged, handsome. I knew what he was thinking. We stepped up to the counter, and I prepared myself for the flirting. And then he looked at me, and his smile dropped into an expression of mock pain as he said, Ouch! What happened to you? As soon as he said it, I felt the blood pool in my legs and the itch throb all over my body. I backed up a little, stepped away from the counter. I looked down at my feet. I put my hands in my pockets. I didn't want to talk to him anymore. I didn't want to say anything. Tina finally broke the spell and asked me what kind of ice cream I wanted. It was all I could do to mumble, chocolate. My head still cast downward, studying the tile patterns. I asked her if we could eat it in the car on the way back to the hospital, and she said that we could. On the way home, I reached up and touched the long purple scar on my cheek. I pinched the edge and blanched it white between my fingers. The scar was numb on my cheek, lifeless and hard like a wad of gum under a school desk. Thanks to Ice Cream Guy, I realized that redness didn't mean I was healing anymore. It meant that I was disfigured. I understood that I wasn't going to get much better. Despite all the reassuring things Tina had said to me in the burn unit, this was it. Ice Cream Boy saw me for what I was. Scarred. All I wanted then was to go back to the hospital. I wanted to climb into my mechanical bed and watch Regis and Kathy Lee for the rest of my life. I wanted to eat chalky pudding and flirt with the nurses. I wanted to be able to scream. When we got back to the hospital, Tina walked me to the elevator, and we rode up to the third floor. We hadn't said anything on the ride back. She never asked me how I liked the ice cream, which is good because I wouldn't have known what to say. Right before the doors opened, she put her hand on my forehead. I looked at her, and she said, Good night, beautiful. And I walked back to the burn unit the safest place in the world.
3: Fire and Ice Cream was produced by Brent Runyon, Christina Egloff, and Jay Allison as part of the Life Stories collection. Sound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our intern is Maya Goldberg Safer. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org where you can also hear more than 1000 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for Resound comes from EMMA, a web based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.
2: You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always...